Have you ever been in a situation where you bought something or you went somewhere or you met someone that upon closer inspection didn't really meet your expectations? You see, when I was getting ready to move down to Oregon State for school, my parents sought out to buy a cheap, reliable car for my college years. So my parents did their due diligence of looking on Craigslist to find that perfect car, and they found it. A 1995 Toyota Corolla. It was tan. It was real nice. And it was a nice, hot summer day when my dad and one of his employees went to check out the vehicle. They did a quick check out of the car. Things seemed to be great in working order, so they drove it home for me. Yet, at home, upon closer inspection, things weren't as they seemed. The first issue was the smell of the car. So, you know, with the windows rolled down, you're standing outside the car, you don't think too much of it. But once you actually slid into the car, you would have thought you were sliding into a full ashtray. Welcome to your first car, Davey. Second issue was the speakers. I have never seen so many speakers in a car. I mean, if you know the curl, the curl is pretty small already. We had a speaker by my head, literally right here. Speakers down by where you'd have the window rolled down. You'd have extra speakers on the dashboard, extra speakers by your feet, and a huge subwoofer in the back. And I'm all for, you know, powerful sound coming out of a car, even if it shakes the car. The issue, every speaker was blown. So it was a great little muffled sound in every station. Third issue. As I mentioned, my dad checked out the car on a nice Oregon sunny day. A day when you would have the windows rolled down as you just cruise around town. Or a day you'd have the windows rolled down because the driver's side window didn't actually roll up. We found that out at home. And then lastly, the icing on top of this lovely cupcake. The ignition cylinder was shot. Therefore, once my dad actually turned off the car when he got home, the car would not start. Welcome to your first car, Davey. Enjoy college. You see, from a distance, even what seems like a close distance, my 95 Corolla seemed fine. It seemed like it would get the job done. But upon closer inspection, it didn't meet the expectations. It failed to fulfill its role. And with unmet expectations, or with being sold a bag of false goods, comes the question, what am I supposed to do with this? If it doesn't serve its purpose, what should happen to it? And in today's text, we see Jesus engaged with a fig tree and a temple. And upon closer inspection, he is left wanting. Upon closer inspection, neither the fig tree nor the temple actually serves its purpose. Both lack the fruit bearing that was expected, and as we'll both see, both ultimately point to a true and better fruitful temple. If you're taking notes, hold true to this statement. Faith in the fruitful temple never 
comes back void. Faith in the fruitful temple never comes back void. And we're going to look at it really in two sections. Verses 12 through 21, where we're looking at the fruitless temple. And 22 through 25, as you look at the fruitful temple. Now, I assume that for most of us, this is a story that we're familiar with. I mean, Matthew and John and their gospels, they also recount this story. And in Luke, Jesus tells a parable that really is the same message of this story. Yet the unique thing in Mark is that he structures it in such a way that he wants to drive home a profoundly powerful and worship-altering point. Mark's strategic structure is what theologians call a Markin sandwich. And this is where Mark, he'll begin a narrative, and then in the middle of the narrative, he starts another narrative that comes to completion before he comes back to that original narrative. If you were to think of it as poetry, it's the idea of a chiasm. It's A, B, A. And in our text today, we have the fig tree, the temple, and then back to the fig tree. In our sandwich language, the fig trees are the pieces of bread, while the temple is the meat. And the fig tree story is there to enhance the meaning and the point of the story of the temple. So you join me as we look at the fruitless temple, picking it up in verse 12. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he, that is Jesus, was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree, he went to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And then they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. And as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. So Jesus and his disciples are heading from Bethany to Jerusalem. And along this two-mile walk, we're told that Jesus gets hungry and he sees this fig tree in the distance. And two important things to note in this is the fig tree's in leaf, yet we're also told the fig tree is not in season. These facts are important because if we were actually to investigate the maturation and development of a fig tree, you'll come to find out that the fig tree leaves, when they're in leaf, they actually are pointing to a fruit-bearing season. And though the tree is not in season, if they have leaves on it, typically they would also have these green buds that would end up becoming figs. And though these green buds were not the most tasty things in the world, 
They were very much edible and common for people to pick as they walked along and would eat on their journey. And so Jesus is walking closer to this tree, expecting to see these green little figs. But rather, he sees that it lacks any fruit whatsoever and curses it. And upon initial reading, we're probably like, well, this seems out of character for Jesus. Like, what did the fig tree ever do to you? This feels like a strong reaction of a seemingly small event. But ultimately, his strong reaction is pointing to something far greater. You see, ultimately, from a distance, the fig tree looked fruitful. But upon closer inspection, its true condition was unveiled. Not serving its purpose, worthy of being done away with. And then in verse 15, we see a rather abrupt shift as now Jesus and his disciples are in a new setting. They're in Jerusalem, heading into the temple. And if you remember last week, Doug's passage ends after the triumphal entry entry, with Jesus walking into the temple, looking around, and then leaving. Feels rather anticlimactic for this massive entry into Jerusalem. And yet our story picks up today, the next day, with Jesus walking back into the temple with a purpose. Yet prior to looking at Jesus' actions and his purpose behind it, I believe it is valuable for us to develop a better understanding of what the temple is. To think through what's its theological significance, what's its purpose, and ultimately what would first century temple look like? What would the temple look like that Jesus was walking into? You see, theologically, the temple holds great significance for the people of God, for the Israelites. For the temple is the very place where God dwells. That's why they call it the house of the Lord. You see, upon Israel being freed from slavery by God's hand, freed from slavery from the Egyptians, they walk into the desert so that they can worship God the way God has called them to worship. Yet if you're familiar at all with the first part of Exodus, you recognize that not much time goes by before the Israelites start to complain started to say, we actually want to go back to Egypt. Yet God, still loving his people, doesn't allow that to happen. Rather, he says, you know what? I'm going to show you how to worship me. And even in your failures, we're going to wander this desert for 40 years before you get into this promised land. But I am going to be with you. And so during this wandering period, the Israelites build upon God's demand the tabernacle, which is really this set up, tear down temple. It's not stationary. It's not permanent. It's portable. And then we, as the story follows, once Israel actually gets into the promised land and they conquer this land that God has set aside for them, they set to actually build a home for the Lord. And King Solomon, David's son, is able to see this come to fruition. Second Chronicles accounts the completion of the temple and the procession of the Ark of the Covenant coming into the Holy of Holies. And this is what chapter 5 says. The house of the Lord was filled with a cloud 
so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house. So we see in this passage that the glory of the Lord in this glory cloud, Shekinah glory, descends and took up residence in the temple. It's the house of God. And the temple served the purpose of being the place where people met with God. It was a place where both Israelites and foreigners would come and worship the Lord and offer sacrifices. We see in Solomon's dedication to the temple, or dedication of the temple, in 1 Kings 8, this will be on a slide behind me. He states, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have built. Yet, have regard to the prayers of your servant and to his plea, O Lord my God, listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you this day, that your eyes may be open night and day toward this house, the place of which you have said, my name shall be there that you may listen to the prayer that your servants offer toward this place and listen to the plea of your servant and to your people Israel when they pray toward this place and listen in heaven your dwelling place and when you hear, forgive. And then Solomon continues on in this prayer to ultimately say, you know what, if we as Israel, if we sin against our neighbors, if we're defeated by an enemy due to sin, if there is drought, if there is famine, if we end up being conquered and sent away in exile, if we have sinned against you, may we turn to you, turn to this house, knowing that you, he says this reprisal, hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servant. See, in the temple, God hears, God forgives, and God acts. And now centuries have passed from 1 Kings to Mark chapter 11. And as is the case, fallen, sinful people often lose their way and pervert that which is holy. And as the text makes clear, the temple that Jesus walks into lacks any reflection of God's purposeful design for this house. Behind me, I have a slide that gives you at least a picture of what the temple structurally would have looked like that Jesus is walking into. And so the scene we're given most likely occurs in the court of the Gentiles, which is this outer ring around the court of Israel, the court of women. If you see that dotted line, that's the wall that ultimately blocks the court of the Gentiles from the rest of the inner temple. There's a dividing wall. You see, the court of Gentiles was the only place in the temple where the Gentiles could actually worship God. It's where they offered their prayers and their sacrifices. Yet, it became like an oriental bazaar and a meat market where people came with their coins and traded them in for Tyrian coins because that was the closest thing to what they were told their coins should look like in Exodus. And they would buy all the products needed for their sacrifices. Wine, oil, salt, and an assortment of animals. To help us understand kind of the magnitude of sales that went on in the court of Gentiles, Josephus, an ancient historian, 
said that in AD 66, 255,000 lambs were sold and sacrificed at the temple. The Gentiles were stuck in the outer courts with the Oriental, Oriental Bazaar and meat market. If we were to modernize this with, with our context today, you can think of it like this. You show up on a Sunday morning to the Majestic. Yet if you're a college student, you're not actually welcome into the sanctuary. Rather, we send you off to the side over where the concessions are. And so as parents are walking their kids up the stairs to the classrooms, as people are walking to the bathroom, as we've got numerous popcorn makers going, as people are selling peanuts, as people are selling whatever may be in the concession stand, that is the place that you are to reside. That is the place that you are to worship the Lord. Not the most inviting space to spend time with centering your heart towards God. And so this is the scene that Jesus walks into. And Jesus walks into the courts and we're told he's turning over tables and driving out both buyers and sellers. You see, Jesus' actions were driven by his zeal for God's honor, for God's name to be glorified for the sacredness of the house of the Lord. Jesus' actions in many ways is this enacted parable as he teaches those around him really the motivation for his actions. Jesus' righteous justification for his actions, he, he alludes to these two Old Testament passages. First, we see Jesus' proclamation for the temple being this national house of prayer for the nations. This points back to Isaiah 56, verses 6 and 7, that say the foreigner who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him and to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants. Everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples or a house of prayer for the nations. God has a heart for all peoples and all nations to worship him and to know him. I mean, this is, this is made evident from the very beginning of scripture. As we see God give this commission to Abraham, who is the father of Israel. And in that commission, he says that Abraham's offspring is going to be a blessing so that all nations of the earth will be As one commentator powerfully states, the Messiah was popularly, popularly expected to purge Jerusalem and the temple of Gentiles, aliens, and foreigners. Jesus' actions, however, is exactly the reverse. He does not clear the temple of Gentiles, but for them. Jesus clears the temple so that the Gentiles may actually partake in Passover the very feast and festival where they celebrate God passing over his people in judgment of Israel and actually redeeming and saving his children. 
For the sake of God's glory, God calls all worshipers, regardless of ethnicity, to his holy temple without any kind of restriction. And secondly, we see that Jesus' indictment of Israel, that that they've made this house into a house of robbers, a den of robbers. And this points back to Jeremiah 7, where God commissions his prophet Jeremiah to tell the Israelites to amend or to correct their ways and their temple practices. If they want God to dwell in that house, changes need to be made. Ultimately, God is telling Jeremiah that they have failed to seek righteousness and fight for justice. They have oppressed the foreigner, the widow, the orphan. They have broken God's holy law and made his majestic holy house into a robber's hangout. Ultimately, Jesus uses these two passages to rebuke Israel for their actions in the temple. He's taking the role of prophet as he echoes the words of Isaiah and Jeremiah. Jesus' righteous anger stems from Israel turning the Lord's house, his house, into something that it should never have become. It's a rebuke, ultimately, of their worship practices. And I believe Jesus' Jesus' actions call us to examine our own worship practices as well. Though we do not worship in a temple, and though we are not offering sacrifices on Sundays, I still believe we have these modern-day temple practices, and we need to examine and evaluate our own hearts. In our tithes and offerings, do we give so that we may get in return? Is it this idea of, okay, God, I'll scratch your back, and of course, you've got to scratch mine. That if I give enough of my treasure, my time, and my talents, that I will be prosperous. Do we give to be accepted by God? Or do we give because we have already been accepted and we are rightly responding in worship? And though we don't fall prey to physical sacrifices, do we fall prey to the sacrifices of our good works? Are we placing our justification in our good deeds? Just striving to be the good person. If I come to church enough Sundays throughout the year, an extra point if it's during a pandemic. If I help enough people, if I do enough good things, if I'm a good person, then God will be pleased in me. Are we trying to earn something It was never ours to earn, but rather a gift of grace freely given. Jesus sees past the facades of our life. He sees past the facades that we work so diligently to put up. Facades that oftentimes our own family, our own friends can't see through. Yet they don't pass the eyes of God. Looking the part does not save us. Friends, please hear me. You can go to church. You can sing the songs. You can pray the prayers. You can listen to the sermon. You can take the elements and still miss Jesus. Our story today makes that clear. Right worship matters. 
and wrong worship has dire consequences. You see, the bookend or this other piece of the bread, of the mark and sandwich, this result of Jesus cursing the fig tree, well, it makes it that much more evident. In verse 20 and 21, as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots, and Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered, has withered away to its roots. Again, Mark's structural technique emphasizes his main point in this section. Just as the fig tree did not bear fruit and withered away to its roots, literally is destroyed, so it will happen with the fruitless temple. Though from a distance it may look like it's bearing fruit, upon closer inspection, it lacks the fruit warranted for its continuation. One of Mark's commentators states, just as the fig tree was not pruned or manured, so that it might bear fruit, but was cursed so that it died. So the temple was not cleansed so that it would continue in more fitting worship to God. Rather, it would soon come to an end. We see Jesus not only challenging the practices of the worshipers, but actually challenging the very institute of the temple. Yet it's important to note, Jesus is not here saying that the temple itself is bad, but rather that the temple is no longer needed, no longer fulfills its purpose. See, we need to remember that the temple was always part of God's plan. If you read the second half of Exodus or the first few chapters in Second Chronicles, you'll see God has a very meticulous design for the tabernacle and for the temple. But the reality is, The temple was never meant to be a forever thing. Jesus' real-life metaphor of the fig tree reveals that the temple was to be done away with. And if we look at history, we know this for a fact. Because in 70 AD, the Romans came and sieged and destroyed the temple. And though the temporal temple was destroyed and done away with, it paved the way for the eternal temple. The temple in Jerusalem points to the glory of the covenantal God that has said to his people, I will dwell with you. The physical, temporal temple is not needed because the figurative, eternal temple is here and better. And that temple is Jesus. And we're told that Jesus is Emmanuel. He is God with us. As John's prologue to his gospel states, the word that is Jesus became flesh and dwelt. The word dwelt literally means tabernacled among us. And in John's retelling of the story, he makes it clear that Jesus saw himself as the true temple. For in John's retelling of this account, Jesus told the Jews, destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. And John notes, he was speaking about the temple of his body. Jesus takes the destruction of the temple upon himself. 
The temple is fulfilled in his death and resurrection. For in Jesus' death and resurrection, he became the ultimate sacrifice and the payment for our sins. Hebrews proclaims Jesus as the true high priest. In chapter 10, it states, every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ has offered for all time a single sacrifice, we know that's his body on the cross, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for the time until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he perfected for all time those who were being sanctified. Jesus has done away with the sacrificial system. And Ephesians 2 tells us that through the blood and cross of Jesus Christ, the wall of hostility between the Jews and Gentiles has been torn down. There no longer is a wall that separates those inside the court and those outside the court. He became the propitiation for our sins through the cross and upon his last breath leaving his body. The curtain of the temple. The curtain that divided the rest of the temple from the holy of holies was split into. The presence of God was open to all. No longer is a building necessary to commune with God. Through Jesus' atoning sacrifice, he has done away with the sacrificial system. He has done away with the division of Jew and Gentile. And he has done away with separating people from God's presence. And that's why as we look to the end, as we look to the book of Revelation, as we see God and his people residing in this new heaven and this new Jerusalem, we are told in Revelation 21, and I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and The gospel calls us to turn our gaze from the physical temple to this figurative temple named Jesus. He and he alone is the one that makes us right with God. He is the atoning sacrifice. He is the one that is our mediator that brings us before God. It's belief and repentance in the gospel, in the gospel of Jesus Christ that gives us unhindered access to God. Through the gospel, we are filled with the Spirit given access to God the Father through the work of Christ the Son. And in verses 22 through 25, we see Jesus engage with his disciples, really as he juxtaposes this fruitless temple with this fruitful temple. A fruitful temple that never returns void, but is ever producing fruit. What I see in verses 22 through 25 25, is really this application of what Jesus has been teaching us throughout the fig tree and the temple. Ultimately, Jesus seems to be saying, you want to know what this truth about the temple means for you? You want to know what worship in the true temple looks like, what the outpouring of worship looks like? Then focus on what I have to say. And Jesus answered them, verse 22, Have faith in God. 
Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever, excuse me, whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. The climax of our whole section rests in those words in verse 22. Four words. Have faith in God. Ultimately, Jesus is saying, have faith in me. Have faith that I am who I say I am, that what I say will come to pass will come to pass. Have faith that I have made a way for you to be made right with God always and forever. Have faith that when you call upon me, I hear and respond. The locus of salvation has shifted from the temple to the Lord Jesus. Our way to God is not in the sacrifice of animals, but in believing in the one true and atoning sacrifice of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. It's not faith in a system. No, it's faith in a person. And the Christian life is one of faith. Christian faith is not like the faith of the Oregonian in springtime where we can say, well, it's going to rain tomorrow because it's going to rain tomorrow. No, faith is not this educated guess, this educated expectation. No, Christian faith is the confident assurance of events not yet seen. Emphasis on confident assurance. It's the freedom from doubting God. I heard one pastor state that authentic faith is a word that speaks of reasoned, careful, deliberate, and intentional thought. Thought upon what? God and his promises. It's not simply believing in God. It's believing God. Believing God in his word and at his word. Which means we're to saturate ourselves in the word of God. Embed your head and your heart in scripture, knowing that you never need to come up for air because he is the very breath of life. To believe God and his promises means you know God and his promises. And the beauty is the more we get to know God, the more we can trust that God is faithful to provide, faithful to give, faithful to sanctify. He never fails. Faith is to believe in his sovereignty, his power, his ability and his will revealed in Scripture. It is to cling to the truth that his ways are higher than our ways and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. It's to believe he's working for our good in the midst of this miry muck we call life. Faith in God is reorienting our worship from worship of self to worship is reorienting the pursuing of our own glory for pursuing God's glory. But the chief end of man is to what? Glorify God forever. And therefore, our 
faith leads to action. Faith and it's our confident assurance expressed in action. Faith leads to fruit. If we are gripped by the coming realities of all that our God has promised to us, then won't how we live our lives look radically different? Our authentic faith in God, our authentic faith in his gospel and his promises and his certainty is made evident in action. And Jesus lays out two ways in which we see that. Prayer and forgiveness. Number one, faith leads to prayer. As Jesus said, truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Faith in God means that we can pray and should pray confidently. We are to pray expecting the hand of God to actually move. Jesus' imagery of the mountains carries this connotation of hindrances or that which is impossible. But again, remember the words of Jesus in Mark 10. All things are possible with God. But it's not this turning to God as if he's this genie that you just rub the lamp or he's this magician pulling out tricks. No, it's praying confidently in light of who Jesus is and what he has done. Jesus has already done the impossible. He's taken those who were dead in our trespasses and brought us to life. He has overcome the greatest obstacle and it's in the name of Jesus that we pray the one that overcomes the biggest of obstacles. When we pray in Jesus' name, we can be confident God will act. As it's compatible with the teaching, life, death, and resurrection of our Savior. Our faith in God reorient ourselves to pray for his glory in light of his promises. See, prayer is not this act of of begging before God, bringing enough trinkets to him so that he will act. No, Jesus taught us that God is ever ready to grant that which is good to us. Therefore, we pray confidently that our Father in heaven will give good gifts to his children. There's the beauty and the imagery of God as Father. Yet we recognize that the good gifts of our Father may not always be what we're looking for. May not always be what we think we want, what we think we need, or even in our timing. Yet luckily, we have a Father who knows our needs and knows when we need it and what we need. He cares for our soul better than we care for our own soul. We can rest in the fact that God is perfect and therefore his gifts and his answers to our prayers are always perfect. We also see that faith in God means we are to pray expectantly. Not just confidently, but also expectantly. Expect God to act. Praying to God is not simply, again, this throwing a quarter into the wishing well, wishing upon a star, 
No, God is alive and active. If we reflect back on Solomon's prayer of dedication, again, we recognize that Paul, that that Solomon uses this language of God hears, God forgives, God acts. And through Jesus, our true and better temple, God continues to hear, continues to forgive, continues to act. But do we pray believing that God will act? Are our prayer lives potentially weak because we don't actually believe that God is alive and active today? We might say it with our lips, but in our heart, it's silent. Do we believe Jesus' statements in this passage? He says, it will be done. Believe that you receive it and it will be yours. Do we live in such a way that we believe our prayers matter? I mean, as we stepped into this building this morning, did we pray that God would reveal himself to us and stir up our affections towards him and his glory? Do you go to community group asking that God would make himself known in that place because having him there is essential to our fellowship and our well-being? Prior to diving into scripture, do we pray that God would open his scripture to us and open us to his scripture? Do we pray for opportunities to evangelize and then actually go throughout that day looking for those opportunities? Or do we miss out on God's answered prayers? Because we pray that God may help us see, but then close our eyes right afterward. This passage tells us we can be confident that the prayers of the saints do not come back void. Because we can be confident in Jesus, for he is faithful. Yet for many of us, I, I, I think we feel like we don't know how to pray or what to pray for. And therefore, we don't pray faithfully. If this is your struggle, a few words of encouragement. I encourage you to practice praying through Scripture. We have been given the word of God. We've been given prayers within this. Prayers that actually show us how to go about praying to God. Prayers of rejoicing and prayers of lament. I encourage you to look through the Psalms because regardless of what your emotion is, I can almost guarantee you, you will find a Psalm that hits on that heartstring. And by that, not only are we saturating ourselves in the word of God, but we are actually praying in light of the promises of God. Praying the Psalms is actually aligning yourself to the heart of God. It's praying the words of scripture, praying the words that God has given us. Or you can also look to the New Testament. You see especially Paul's letters are saturated with his prayers for these people. May we pray the prayers of Paul for ourselves, for our neighbors, for our siblings, for our children. And by doing this, we're not only educating ourselves on the word of God, we're actually communing with God. And I believe that the prayers of scripture will be answered so we can cling to that truth. The word of God not only teaches us how to pray, 
but what to pray for. Authentic faith in God leads to praying confidently and expectantly. And secondly, authentic faith leads to living a life of forgiveness. Our faith in God leads to living lives where we willingly and wholeheartedly forgive. Verse 25, and whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive your trespasses. These words echo the teaching of Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount. Yet in Matthew, Jesus takes it a step further to state that if we do not forgive those who wrong us, God the Father will not forgive us. Living a life of forgiveness calls us to live in light of the gospel. We have rebelled against our maker. We have rebelled against our father, sinned against him. The author and creator of all good things. And we said, I don't want you. Yet God in his mercy, unwarranted mercy, has forgiven those who repent and turn to him. So as returned children, isn't the right response to what we have received in the gospel to do likewise and forgive? Because we have been forgiven, we should freely forgive. Honestly, to to not live a life of forgiveness is actually to lose sight of the truth of the gospel and who we are in God. So may our lives rightfully reflect these gospel truths. So I ask you, is there anyone that you need to forgive this morning? Could be somebody in this very room. Could be a parent, a sibling, a friend, a coworker. I urge you, brothers and sisters, to bring that person before the Lord. In our time of confession after this sermon, may you go to the Lord in prayer, forgiving them, but then also taking that extra step and actually going and talking to that individual. Maybe not even knowing that they don't even know they've been wrong, that you've wronged them or they've wronged you. But going to them, asking for forgiveness and experiencing truly the healing of that. Because of our faith in the Lord, because of our faith in the gospel, we confidently forgive because we have been forgiven. To the person and work of Jesus Christ, He has reoriented our worship from a physical temple to Jesus himself. He has reoriented us from faith in a system to faith in a person. And upon closer inspection, we see that our man-made worshiping is left wanting, is left lacking any kind of fruit. So may we turn our gaze to the God-ordained worship of his son and all his glory. And may we rest in the fact that we can confidently place our faith in God for nothing in him ever comes back void. Let's pray. Lord God, we come before you and praise you for your gospels, God that reveal who you are to us. And God, oftentimes you reveal who you are, you also challenge us to the core of who we are. God, may you convict us and challenge us, yet also encourage us. Bring us to the foot of the cross that we may rejoice 
in you. Our good Father, who's faithful to his people. In your name, amen. So we're gonna enter into a time of response, responding to the word of God saying, the word of God prayed, and the word of God preached. A time in which we respond to the truth of scripture and rejoice that we have been made new through the blood of Christ. And so our celebration of the Lord's table is to remember ultimately what Christ has done through the cross. And what he's doing now in our lives this very week and what he will do in the future. You see, the Lord's table is a beautiful thing because it not only points to the past, it points to the present and Jesus' return. And ultimately, I, I love looking at the Lord's table in light of even our passage today. 